we're so glad that you're here tonight. Thanks for braving the rain to make it in here. It was a little crazy there for a few minutes. My name is also Kelsey. I'm Kelsey Shepherdson, and if I haven't met you, I'm another one of the pastors at Hope Denver, and I have the privilege of sharing the scriptures with you tonight. Um, we've been in a new series that started last week called The Good News, and we've been talking about the hope of Jesus, which is my favorite topic ever, and so I'm very excited to share with you tonight. You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10 of that chapter, and tonight we're looking at the story of Jesus in Zacchaeus, so I'm going to get to say that name about 100 times tonight, which is fun. Um, our focus statement tonight is, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And by basically what we've been looking at is we're talking about what, what is Jesus about? What is the good news of Jesus? So tonight our topic is Jesus the Savior, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and that's great news. The story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, it takes place within the larger Luke narrative in which Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem with his disciples. And the narrative is framed in such a way that Jerusalem is the final destination where Jesus is going to die a sacrificial death on the cross for all humanity, and he's going to be raised back to life. And the stories that Luke chooses to include as he chronicles this journey that Jesus is making, they have a common theme. And what that common theme is, is it's showing the criteria for how you belong in the kingdom of God. It's showing what kind of people belong in God's kingdom. And Luke's illustrating how different people, how they respond to Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. So he's highlighting, he's kind of showing an embarrassing portrait, honestly, of the disciples and their inability to really adequately comprehend the kingdom of God and its values and its purpose. And he's contrasting people who have faith and who accept the kingdom of God with humility and with gladness. And he contrasts those with those who reject the kingdom of God out of self-satisfaction and pride. And before we go any further, I think it's important that I explain to you what I mean by this phrase, the kingdom of God. It's kind of a churchy and weird thing to say as, as many times as I've said it. But what the kingdom of God is referring to and what Jesus was talking about was he was talking about a place where God is king, a place where God's will is done, um, a place where God's will reigns on the earth. So people are in the kingdom of God. They're people, when people are in the kingdom of God, they're people who enact the will of God here on earth. And something that is interesting is that Jesus established something that in Christianity we call a now and not yet theology. And it's a little confusing, but basically it means that he taught us that the kingdom of God is here with us now, that it was inaugurated with Jesus coming to earth, but that it's also not yet in the sense that Jesus is still going to come again, that we believe in a second coming of Christ where he'll come in glory and power and he'll establish his kingdom once, or once and for all, and that's when all evil will be destroyed and eradicated. So we believe that the kingdom of God is at hand, that it's now, but it, that it's also not yet in the sense that it's still coming to be and that we're part of letting it come to be as the people of God, that we're part of that, of that uh, process. Jesus also, he connected the idea of being in the kingdom of God with the idea of inheriting eternal life. These things go hand in hand. But even so, every time in the Gospels, I shouldn't say every time, but many times in the Gospels, when people approach Jesus with questions about their eternal destiny, 
after reassuring them, he often shifts the conversation from future salvation to the present demands and requirements about being an insider in the kingdom. There's, there's something interesting that's developed in Christian culture, and it's something that we call the sinner's prayer or the salvation prayer, or sometimes the prayer of repentance. And this is something we do in church a lot. Um, we offer people a chance to repent of their sins and accept Jesus into their heart. That's a phrase that we use sometimes. And the interesting thing is, is that is never in the Bible. Jesus never modeled that prayer for us. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't lead people through that prayer himself. And I'm not saying that those salvation prayers are wrong. In fact, I've led people through them many times in my life, and I think that can be a really good thing. But a salvation prayer wasn't ever Jesus' focus. The focus of being in the kingdom of God was about obedience. It was about following God and enacting his will on the earth. And so that's a little bit of what we're going to talk about tonight. The disciples, they struggle. They struggle all through this journey to Jerusalem to comprehend Jesus' kingdom ethic. They don't really understand the criteria by which Jesus judges who is an insider and who is an outsider in the kingdom of God. And the reason that they're so confused is because they have grown up as pious Jews, and they've been accustomed to a, religi a religiosity that rewards social status, that rewards an outward show of religious piety, of things on the outside. And they're predisposed to believing that it's the most respected members of society who are deserving of spiritual blessing and belonging. They've been trained to believe that. And yet time and time again, Jesus is debunking that belief in them because he's showing them over and over again that he cares nothing about social status, but that God looks rather at the heart of a person, that he looks inside at their attitude towards God. And Jesus teaches them over and over that it's, some, it's people who are poor in spirit, and I'll talk about that in a minute. It's people who are poor in spirit who inherit the kingdom of God. So throughout this Luke narrative, Jesus is knocking down every piece of status or religiosity that people think they can use to justify themselves before God, and he's trying to get his disciples to see that it's in utter dependence and surrender to God that salvation is found. And in fact, Jesus is willing to push people to despair in order to get them to see that they need God. We see that in several of the stories in Luke, that Jesus is willing to let people sit in the yuck of their mess and let them realize how much they need him, and then he leaves, and he lets them deal with it. And that's because he's trying to get them to see how very much they need him. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus taught this. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to be poor in spirit, what that means is it's the opposite of being self-possessed. So someone who is self-possessed will believe themselves to be capable of anything in and of themselves. They're independent. They don't need anyone or anything. They're proud and capable. And to be poor in spirit is the opposite of that. It's to recognize one's own inner poverty, to see yourself as you truly are, as a soul in need of salvation and blessing from God. Someone poor in spirit, they recognize that God is a gracious giver and that he is the one we must come to for everything we need. And a person who's poor of spirit has an attitude of trust and expectation when they go to God. And they're also able to express grace towards others because they realize that they themselves must be extended grace. John Calvin, he said it this way. He said, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. 
And Jesus says that these are the people who belong to the kingdom of God, that these are the insiders in his kingdom. So let's get to the scriptures here. We're going to read from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just invite you in to our, our study tonight. I pray that you would speak through me, that whatever it is you have for each person would be made apparent. Lord Jesus, that we would fall more in love with you tonight as we realize the depth of your love, the depth of your mercy and your goodness toward us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read verses 1 through 4 one more time because I'm all about repetition. So let's read that one more time, then we'll get into it. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. So we're told here that Jesus is passing through Jericho, which is a reminder from Luke that Jesus is on a journey towards Jerusalem. We're reminded of that throughout the book of Luke. And this isn't meant to diminish Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus as random or circumstantial, but actually it's doing the opposite. It's underscoring that Jesus saw this stop as an important part of his divine mission that will culminate on the cross. This was purposeful. We learn also here that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, that he's very wealthy. And this is the only time in the Bible when the term chief tax collector is used. And so it's a little iffy what it means, but... Most biblical scholars agree that what it's saying here is that he was the overseer of a group, a larger group of tax collectors. And if you don't know much about tax collectors in the Bible, tax collectors were vilified in Jewish culture because they were traitors to their own people. They were Jews who were collaborating with the Roman government to systematically cheat hardworking families out of their money. And Zacchaeus was an overseer of many of these types of tax collectors who were unfairly extorting Jewish families. So he would receive a hefty cut for every person in his community who was stolen out of more taxes than they should legally be paying. So Zacchaeus, he's a hated member of his community. Um, although he's wealthy, he lives his life as a social outcast. So he's a little bit of an oddball when you talk about trying to put someone into a category. Because on the one hand, he has money. He has, he has something that should give him social status, but he doesn't have a good social status because he's so hated for what he does. Not only is he hated because of his dishonest profession, but he's also remarkably short. 
so short, and I'm short, so I can say that, but so short that it was noteworthy enough to be mentioned in the Bible. So I think he's got to be pretty, pretty darn short is what I'm thinking. And he, he probably was the subject of intense ridicule for this, not only because he was already hated for his profession, but he's also an easy target because he's a short guy. Um, so, and we read here we, that he was too short to see over the crowd. And the implication here is that no one is willing to help him out to let him get to the front of the crowd. Because if you're an important person, if you're someone who people like, they're going to make room for you so you can see because you're short, right? But they're not making room for him. They're, they're, shoving, they're shoving ahead and shoving him out of the way so that he can't see. They won't allow him the courtesy to be able to see Jesus clearly. So Zacchaeus, in his desperation to see Jesus, and I love this picture, he runs ahead of the crowd. He kind of has a, a moment of inspiration of how he's going to figure this out. And he, he runs ahead of the crowd, and he finds a sycamore fig tree so he can see Jesus. And we're going to have a, there's a picture that's going to come up on the screen of a sycamore tree. You can kind of picture it. I just love, I love to see pictures because it helps me to, to visualize it in my own mind a little bit more. But there are great trees for climbing. As you can see, it's pretty easy to get get up there, and then he could perch on one of those long branches and have a really good view of the road as Jesus was, was walking up. And uh, I, I just love that picture of how his eagerness to get there, his eagerness that which he runs ahead and climbs the tree. And I think it's, it's really a, a sign of his tenacity, his tenacity to, to see Jesus, that he's willing to do something that in this culture would have been seen as very undignified, to, to go running like that and to climb a tree. This is a grown man. He's probably wearing some kind of robe. <laughs> this is not something that's easy to do, but he's that tenacious. And that's something that we can see not only in his tenacity to see Jesus, but in his tenacity in his job. Even though he's doing something wrong, he obviously has tenacity in his profession, and that's why he's the overseer of so many people. He's willing to, to put down his pride and his dignity to see Jesus. Zacchaeus is poor in spirit. That's why we were talking about what it means to be poor in spirit. This is a man who's poor in spirit. This is a man who knows that he needs God, and he's willing to humble himself to receive him. He's willing to put himself in a humble position in order to see Jesus, to know Jesus. Let's pick up at verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. So the first thing I love to notice about this is that Jesus calls him by name. And we're not told here how he knows it. Maybe he d had divinely knew it because he's God, or maybe someone had been saying something bad about Zacchaeus as he was walking up. We don't know, but he calls him by name. He says, Zacchaeus. Jesus is so kind and good. He dignifies people. He dignifies others that, that people dismiss. People who are dismissed by society, Jesus looks at them and he calls them by name. And then he uses an imperative here. He says, I must stay at your house today. It's not, Zacchaeus, can I stay with you? It's, I must stay. See, Jesus is showing that this is part of his divine calling, that part of Jesus' mission on earth is to seek and to save the lost. And that the way that he does that is by inviting himself into their lives. That he invites himself into true fellowship. The most, the most intimate form of fellowship you can have with someone is to eat with them. 
And so that's what he invites himself into with Zacchaeus. Jesus desires true and deep relationship with all who are glad to receive him. He's ready. He's ready for that relationship. So Jesus does this. Zacchaeus gets down, and he's overjoyed to receive Jesus. This is the, the, his dream of what could have happened, but he probably didn't think it would, but it has happened. Jesus has seen him. Jesus has noticed him, and now Jesus has invited himself into his life. And he's ready. He's ready to be more than an observer. He truly wants to know Jesus. He wants to invite him into his world. And I think this is a good moment in the story where we can ask ourselves, am I just an observer, or do I really want to know Jesus? Am I like someone in the crowd who just sees Jesus as a little bit of entertainment and something interesting to listen to, or am I the person like Zacchaeus who's desperate to really know him? I think we can learn from Zacchaeus there. And of course, the crowd begins to mutter because they, there's this grumble of disapproval making its way as people report to one another that Jesus is going to Zacchaeus' house. And they're angry because they expect Jesus to act according to their social standards, their standards of propriety and, and social conventions. And they expect him to respect the social order and to reward those who appear righteous. And Zacchaeus, he does not appear righteous at all. In fact, the, the exact opposite. He's actually quite a despicable person. He's a person who exploits others and steals from others. And yet, Jesus welcomes him, and he gives special attention to him. And I think we can, I, I at least can feel with the crowd on this one. I think that uh, any of us would probably be upset that the person who is the most sinful, the most despicable, is getting special attention. But that's what's so unique about Jesus, is that he shows grace to the least deserving and leads them to salvation with his kindness. It's his kindness that leads people to repentance. And Jesus knew that Zacchaeus needed his kindness more than anyone else there. Let's read verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So right away, something I notice here is that Zacchaeus calls Jesus Lord, and in that word, he shows the overflow of his heart. He shows that his response to Jesus is one of humility, and he's acknowledging Jesus as an authority in his life, even though this is the first time they've ever met. He then presents for Jesus an account of his heart change. He's describing to Jesus the change that has happened in his attitude towards others. So there's two things that are really significant about what he says here. The first is that he says, I will give half my possessions to the poor, and I will pay back four times the amount to anyone I have cheated out of money. And considering his profession, that is likely to be a very long list of who he would have to pay back. That's quite a lot of money to commit to. Um, Jewish religious law required that restitution for cheating be the original amount plus a fifth. So Zacchaeus's statement shows that his heart has really been changed because he is going so far above and beyond the bare minimum of what's required by the law. It's not him trying, we know here, and Jesus knows here, that Zacchaeus isn't trying to just justify himself. He's not just trying to get his, himself into heaven or look good but he's actually had a heart change. He's had a heart change where not only does he want to make amends, but he actually wants to bless others. He wants to go above and beyond. 
And the second important thing we should note with what Zacchaeus says is that in the original language, the verb tense here connotes that Zacchaeus is presently doing the things that he is claiming to do and that he will continue to engage in these giving practices moving forward. So the language indicates that he's actually already begun to behave this way toward his money, uh, perhaps even before Jesus has arrived. So that's kind of an interesting thing. We don't know if maybe he was currently giving the money as he says this to Jesus, but it's probably more likely that even before Jesus arrived that he was, his heart had changed about others and about his money and that he was already in this practice of doing this. And we know that Zacchaeus doesn't do this with an ulterior motive because he, it's not possible for him with his social standing to gain influence or friends by doing this. No one is going to think any more, any better of him. He is doing this out of a genuine heart change and a desire to be righteous before God. Let's read verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus says that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. And that means salvation has come not only to Zacchaeus, but also to the whole family as well. So they're, they're here with the, this whole exchange going on. Uh, they're also there as well. And when Jesus speaks of salvation here, he's saying that Zacchaeus has entered the kingdom of God that begins in this present age and that culminates in life with God forever. So Zacchaeus' salvation, it began when Jesus came to his house. It was an act of grace that Jesus came to eat with him. Zacchaeus was undeserving of Jesus' presence, but Jesus came anyway. And Zacchaeus' salvation came not simply from his act of penance, but from the gracious gift of God extending that grace and accepting him as a true son of Abraham. And what Jesus means here by son of Abraham, what he's implying is that you, if you have faith in God, that you are following the legacy of Abraham, the Jewish patriarch, because Abraham was a man of faith. And so through expressing his faith, by Zacchaeus expressing his faith in Jesus, Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. And he's able to receive the gift of salvation because he acts in faith. It's this act of repentance that reveals to Jesus his heart of humility and faith in Jesus. And this is our Christian doctrine of grace through faith. We believe that, that we have salvation by grace through faith. And that's something that if you grew up in church, you, you hear that often. But sometimes we don't know what that means. And what that means is that we believe that God grants us salvation as a gracious gift that we can't earn by our own righteousness, that it's impossible in and of ourselves to earn, but that we are will, if we are, we have to be willing to express faith and trust in God in order to receive that, and that we demonstrate our faith and trust in God by obeying him, by doing what he says. Having faith in someone means that we're willing to obey and listen to what they say, that we're trusting that what they say is true, and that we trust that the way they tell us to live our lives is the right way to live our lives. So it's through, it's grace, we can't earn it, but it's through faith. We have to express faith in God. So Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus, again, it dismantles some of the disciples' expectations. Throughout his public ministry, Jesus frequently preached about the dangers of power and wealth, and right now he's blessing and giving salvation to this very wealthy man. Jesus taught his disciples that money is a tricky thing because it has this ability to create a dependency in our lives that can compete with our fidelity to God. That money is so, 
can wrap itself around us so much that we think we don't need God because we have money. And Jesus warned the disciples against being enamored with social status and with money. And he wasn't preaching asceticism, which is a belief that money and material belongings are inherently sinful. But he was teaching them that if we belong to the kingdom of God, that the dis disposition towards our money should be radically different than the people of this world. That our disposition toward our finances should be towards caring for the poor rather than for our own selfish desires. Jesus taught that kingdom people are those who distance themselves from status conventions of the world, that they're people who give generously to the poor, and that they find their value in not what they have, but in God and who he is. Followers of Jesus are people who treasure the poor as though they were their own family. And when Jesus says Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham, he's saying also that Zacchaeus has been restored to the community of God. And Jesus knows that because of his faith that he's expressed through a heart change towards others. Um, although others may treat him like an outsider, God accepts him as an insider in his kingdom and his family. He's behaving as a child of Abraham by expressing faith and trusting God. So Jesus then, he, we kind of end the passage with Jesus stating his mission on earth, which is to seek and to save the lost. And I think a good question is, what's meant here by the lost? And what this means is it means those who are separated from God because of their sin. And that's all of us. It's important to Jesus that Zacchaeus understands that while Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus, Jesus was seeking him first. And there's two really important takeaways that I think we can learn about the kingdom of God from this story. And that's that the first would be this, that God's heart is to save those who are frequently excluded. That's something that's so beautiful about Jesus, is that he seeks all who are lost, he seeks all humanity that they would love him, but God has an extra special place in his heart for those who are excluded from society, from those who are, who are not loved, for those who are not treasured. He has a special heart for them. And the second thing we learn about the kingdom of God is this, that there's only one requirement for inclusion in the kingdom of God, and it's, do you have a heart of faith and trust towards God? Do you have a heart of faith and trust toward him? That is the only parameter for inclusion in the kingdom. Now, in religious circles and in church, a lot of times the topic of salvation leads directly into a discussion about eternity and the thought of the afterlife. And we have this understanding in Christianity that there are people who will be saved, people who are in the kingdom, and that there are people who will not be saved, people who are outside the kingdom. And I think if this story teaches us anything, it's, it should be a reminder that we are not the ones who decide who is inside of the kingdom of God and who is out. That is something that the disciples try to do over and over again in this, in this gospel. They try to label people. They try to exclude based on their own understandings. And Jesus, time and time again, uh, reprimands them for doing that. They are not to do that. Because it's only Jesus who has the ultimate authority on that. And it's only God who knows the inside of a person's heart completely. And that's what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand, is that you can see everything on the outside, but you can't know a person's heart. Only God can. But like I said earlier, Jesus does correlate belonging in the kingdom to eternal life. There is something here. He does try to focus people on the here and now, 
But he also has an assumption there that being in the kingdom or outside the kingdom has a huge bearing on what happens to you in eternal life, in eternity. And likewise, Jesus speaks, he talks about people who are in the kingdom having beautiful, long life, eternal life with God after they die. But Jesus also speaks of people outside the kingdom experiencing spiritual death or hell after life on earth. And that's a tough thing, and it's something we don't like to talk about, at least not in our church. I know some churches like to talk about it. But over the years, I have come to understand something about hell through reading Jesus' words. And that's that hell is a place for people who don't want God. It's not a place where people go who God doesn't want. I I think this story illustrates to us that God wants everyone. God wants everyone. And Jesus came to earth to seek and save all who are lost, and that's all of us. And so hell is this awful place. It's this one place in all reality where people can go and be without God if that's what they want because they don't believe in him or they don't think they need him. And what makes hell a place of torment is not that God created a special torture chamber, but that it's a place in which God has no place. He's not there at all. And we live in a world where, despite the presence of evil and darkness, that we can invoke the name of God at any time, and he's there. He's present. And even people who don't acknowledge God on earth they still benefit from the presence and goodness of God in our world. The Bible says that. It says that the whole earth is full of the glory of God. So even if you don't acknowledge God, even if you hate God, even if you're in opposition to God, you still have a benefit of being in a world that God created and that is full of his glory. But there's no such thing as a good or happy place devoid of the presence of God. The universe was created by God, and hell is the one place where God says, okay, I will not go there. And it's only for people who have self-elected to reject God's love, even after his many attempts to win them over. That's, That's the bad news of this story. But the good news is so much bigger. And that's that heaven is gonna be full. We we know from the scriptures that the the heaven is gonna be full of multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people who are worshiping God and worshiping Jesus the Savior. Heaven will be full of people who are poor in spirit, people who recognize their need for God and who trust him to save them. They are people who trust him enough to obey his word and to wait on his promises, and they are the blessed ones. They are the saved. So I'm going to have Lauren come up on the keys, and we're going to come into a, a time of prayer in just a minute here. But I just wanted to have a brief time of application for what do we do with this? What does this mean for us? If you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus, I think that the takeaway for us tonight is to search our hearts and ask ourselves, am I poor in spirit? Am I a person who recognizes that I have a deep need for God? And do I express that to him? Do I tell him that I need him? Do I humble myself before the Lord and before others? Am I humble? Am I a person who has a disposition towards the poor? Do I think of how to bless the poor when I'm planning out my finances? Is the ultimate goal of my budget about blessing others or is it about getting more stuff for me? Am I seeking to improve my status in the eyes of others or am I seeking to build others up and raise the status of the outsider, people who don't belong? 
think we can think on those things tonight if we follow Jesus. I think he gently convicts us. I know I was convicted this week as I prepared this message. And then secondly, if you're here tonight and you wouldn't say that you're really a follower of Jesus, but you haven't said, yes, Jesus, Lord, you haven't, like Zacchaeus, said, Lord, Lord, and turned your life and turned your attitude toward him. You haven't said yes to his offer to come and dine with you, to come and eat with you, to come into your life. I want to give you the chance to turn towards God in that humility and poorness of spirit that Zacchaeus demonstrated for us. Because all you have to do is acknowledge that you need him. His heart is for you. He wants you deeply. He wants to save you. He wants you so much that he sent his son just for that purpose. And his heart is that you would choose to trust him, obey him, and follow him for the rest of your life. And that that life would go on into eternity forever. You belong in the kingdom of God. You do. And the only requirement is that you come to him with empty hands of faith and say, God, I know you're real. Help me. I need you. I need your help. And you know what? If you struggle with doubt, you can even bring him that. You can say, God, I want to believe in you. Help me. And he'll take you that way too. So I'd like you all to stand up. We're going to pray together. If you just all close your eyes and bow your heads, I'm going to ask for a couple different responses tonight. And I'm not going to embarrass anyone. I'm not going to make you come up or do anything weird. Um, But I just want to have a moment to pray over every person here who would want to respond to something that God has spoken to your heart tonight. The first thing is, if you are here tonight and you're a follower of Jesus and you just think, man, that was convicting. Uh, God was stirring something in my heart tonight about obedience to him, about how I care for the poor, about how I invite him into my heart with eagerness with hunger. If that's you tonight, if God was just speaking something to you about that, would you just put your hand up? No one's looking, and I just want to know so I can pray over you. Yeah, there's hands everywhere. You're not alone. You can put your hands down. And if you're here tonight and you have never said, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want you to be my God. I want you to be Lord in my life. I know that I need you. And I don't have everything figured out, and I've got problems, I've got sin, but I know I need you. If that's you, would you put your hand up too? And I want to pray for you as well. We'll pray for the whole group together. I won't embarrass you. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that you speak to us that you convict us of sin, Lord, but that you do it so mercifully, that you do it with kindness. God, that you don't come in with condemnation. You don't come in with judgment. You come in with love. You come in with fellowship. You come in with peace and understanding. God, that's what you did to Zacchaeus, and that's what you do with us right now, that here we are standing here with all our sins, all our weaknesses, all our junk, God, and you see us with kindness. You see us with love and with compassion. And oh God, you are so good. You are so kind. Thank you, God, that you have a plan, that you, Jesus, were the plan 
that God had to see us saved, to see the lost come home, that you had a plan for that, God, and that your plan, your hope is that all people would call on the name of the Lord and be saved, that that's your heart. And God, we pray that we would be part of seeing that happen. Lord, where we have been apathetic in our faith, where we haven't pursued you with tenacity, Lord, where we haven't had a heart towards the poor, where we haven't had a heart towards others, but have rather been selfish, Lord, would you come in and fix us? Would you come in and heal us? God, we're acknowledging tonight, we're saying we are poor in spirit. Oh, how we need you, God. We are saying, help us, Jesus. Help us to do what's right. Help us to love you more. Help us to care about the things that matter in this life. Help us not to cling to worthless idols and to money and to status and to power, but help us to cling to you and to your kingdom and to your kingdom purposes. Lord, I pray for each person here that you would give them a specific word, a specific action item to take into their week. That whatever it is that that you spoke to their heart, that you would help them to put that word that you spoke into action, that their faith would turn to action. Would you help them to discern that, Lord? Would you help them to reflect on that as they leave tonight and go into their work week? That you would help us all to take one step toward you as Zacchaeus did, Lord, as he climbed up the tree. Help us to do that, to do a step of climbing the tree this week, to get close to you, Lord, to know you more, to invite you into our lives, because we know you've already invited us into your life. And so we say yes, and we want to say more and more of a strong yes with each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.